So the other day, I read a fascinating theory in an article called The Root of All Cruelty. We've all heard the idea that people tend to make the people that they're going to oppress subhuman in their minds. They impose that idea that the person is less than human. And some say that's in order to justify such cruelty. We have to recognize others as less human in our minds. But in this article, Paul Bloom proposes that, in fact, it's the opposite. His theory is that humanity is the problem that we have with our enemies. And that cruelty, whether it be any kind of abuse or even exclusion, is a means to regulate social relationships, even to humiliate those that we don't like. He writes, Google your favorite despised human group and add words like vermin, roaches, animals, and it will come spilling out. Some of this rhetoric is seen as inappropriate for mainstream discourse, but wait long enough and you'll hear the word animals used even by respectable people referring to terrorists or Israelis or Palestinians or to undocumented immigrants or to deporters of undocumented immigrants. Such rhetoric shows up in speech of white supremacists, but also when we talk about white supremacists. So ultimately, his diagnosis is that humans crave supremacy, even in the name of morality. And one way we experience perceived supremacy is to degrade other humans based on some difference, be it good, bad, or neutral. When a group emphasizes their own perfection and supremacy, it's a means of justifying their place in privilege and the oppression and degradation of others. So speaking in biblical terms, this is both a hatred towards the image of God and an inappropriate sense of being godlike. And to kick it up a notch, the Bible tells us in Genesis 3 that the first humans, one flesh, the pinnacle of all the goodness of what God created, were deceived by the serpent into believing that it wasn't enough just to bear God's image. They wanted to be supreme, like God. And they plunged the world into perpetual, uh, to a perpetual reenactment of this pursuit. But the futility of a pursuit to be supreme over an invisible God leads us and forces us to settle for degrading his visible image, one another. And history has confirmed that for us. There's little I need to say to prove my point. I can just say Holocaust, slavery, Inquisition, Crusades, ISIS, each an extreme case of the pursuit of supremacy resulting in grand atrocity. So we're, I'm mentioning this because we're going to encounter the theme of supremacy in Mark today. We come to this chapter knowing that things are tense. Jesus has been performing miracles, calming storms, casting out demons, feeding large masses of people with a few loaves of bread. With that has come increasing opposition. Jesus and his disciples are too moral for King Herod, but they're not moral enough for the Pharisees and the scribes. So what do they do? What do the Pharisees and scribes do and the Herodians do? The uber-moral teams up with the uber-immoral to plot the death of Jesus. So here in Mark chapter 7, we pan back to the Pharisees and the scribes and their accusations towards Jesus and his disciples, ultimately continuing their pursuit of supremacy. Then we're going to go beyond the borders of Israel into Gentile territory where we encounter a non-Jewish woman who makes a bold request of Jesus. 
And we're going to look at her posture before true supremacy. Finally, we'll wrap up with a special healing that Jesus performs, which confirms his position of supremacy. So three things, the pursuit of supremacy, the posture before true supremacy, and Jesus's position of supremacy. So let's look at Jesus's encounter with the Pharisees and the scribes here in Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him some, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they, came, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So to us, this sounds normal, right? I mean, it's kind of gross if you don't wash your hands before you eat or you don't wash your pots and your pans and, you know, the stuff that's involved with dinner. There's a lot of nasty stuff that we touch throughout our day. But when they say defiled or unwashed, what they're talking about is ritual purity. See, going through the marketplace, they might have come in contact with something that's considered unclean. Maybe they exchanged money with a foreigner or accidentally touched unclean food. And out of fear that something unclean would transfer to them in the process of eating, they ritually washed their hands. Again, this isn't the same as fearing disease. As Clint pointed out a few weeks back when he talked about the healing of the leper in Mark chapter 1, unclean means outside the community of God's people. So they believed that contact with outsiders put them at risk of being defiled, becoming an outsider themselves, tainting the perfection that they've worked so hardly to achieve. And I want you to note that they've worked really hard to achieve their righteousness. So the Pharisees and the scribes come at Jesus with this question laced with accusation in verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So they're saying, we know how one becomes righteous, and you're supposed to be from God. But the ones you're teaching, the ones you surround yourself with, eat with defiled hands. They don't walk according to our traditions. And of course, we're the supreme example of righteousness. Aren't you seeing how this doesn't add up, Jesus? So a brief note on hand-washing. Like I said, it's for ritual purity. The hand-washing was employed, not sanitation. And hand-washing was actually commanded in the Old Testament. So that idea of hand-washing wasn't created by the Pharisees and the scribes. But it was only for the priests, those who worked in the temple. But by the time Jesus is on the scene, it seems that the Pharisees have imposed that on themselves and on the people of God. So Jesus responds to their accusation with his own assessment of their practices. In uh, verse 6, he says, well did, Isaiah, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus calls them out. He calls them hypocrites, and he uses the word of God, Isaiah 29, 13, to do so. This is from a passage that would have been familiar to them, where God is judging Israel for their wickedness just hundreds of years earlier. And in the same passage, verse, in verse, uh, three verses down, we read this in Isaiah. You turn things upside down. This is God talking to Israel. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should save its maker? He did not make me. 
or the thing formed should say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. So I want you to see the pursuit of supremacy here. The religious insiders are standing in front of Jesus, God, the agent of all creation. And they're asking him why he doesn't follow their rituals. Wow. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Their rejection of God's commandment in favor of their own is a result of their pride. And it's evidence of their pursuit for God's supremacy. All that in such a simple question like, hey, why don't your people wash their hands? And Jesus just keeps throwing punches. If you look with me at verse 9, he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have, had, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So again, he calls them out on replacing God's commandment with their tradition. But what commandment is he talking about? He says there are many examples of this, but he chooses the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And he mentions that these leaders allowed people to say all their stuff was offered to God, so they couldn't help their parents. The particular offering Jesus mentions, Corbin, is an irrevocable offering to God. So pretty much a person could offer some things or everything they own to God. But the catch is you could use all of it until you die. So in this circumstance, it'd be like if your parents said, hey, I need help. But you're like, sorry, Ma, you got me just at the wrong time. I just gave all my stuff to God. I can still use it, but you're out of luck. And then you'd be praised for being so sacrificial and, and doing such a righteous act. And no leader would come up to you and say, hey, do you know God never actually asked you to give all of your stuff to him? But he did tell you that you should love your parents and honor your parents. And no leader's going to say that because eventually that stuff's probably going to come to them. In fact, Jesus is saying they don't even permit this person to provide for their parents. Can you see the selfishness and self-righteousness of that? This is a good example of how these leaders were operating. Everything in the name of God. Everything for the purpose of self-elevation. Everything toward this tenacious pursuit of supreme righteousness and authority. So the criticism of Jesus and his disciples isn't because the Pharisees and scribes are looking out for the good of Israel. It's because they want it to be clear that Jesus and his disciples don't measure up. And of course, they do. So what does Jesus do? <coughs> Sorry. He starts to run the meeting. Look with me in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Whoever's watching, Jesus calls them over and teaches over the commandment of the Pharisees and the scribes. Are you seeing why they wanted to kill him? He's not just opposing them. He outthinks them. He outteaches them. And he outranks them. When a false notion of supremacy comes into contact with true supremacy, with the one who is truly supreme, collision is inevitable. So after this, Jesus leaves and he enters a house where, as usual, his disciples ask, hey, what did you mean when you said that? 
And he explains that what we eat simply goes through our digestive tract. It has nothing to do with the heart. After which, Mark adds a note, thus he declared all foods clean. It's just a little note, but it has huge implications. Jesus declares that foods that were formerly called unclean are now clean. Anybody have ham, bacon, or anything like that for Thanksgiving this year? You can thank Jesus for that. You've, you have not been defiled. The purpose of the food laws in the Old Testament was not to make Israel righteous, but to show that they differed from the cultic practices of their neighbors. You see, the pagan nations used food a lot in their sacrifices. So to eat differently from them was to point to a different God, the one true God. And God's intention was not to create an isolated community, but a community that glorified him and testified to his goodness. It can be summed up with this verse from Leviticus 20, 26, where God tells Israel, you will be holy because I am holy. In other words, you are unique because I am unique. You will be separate to show that I am separate. Not to show that you are supreme, but to show that I am. Jesus is saying this time of separation is over. It has been fulfilled. God's holiness will be shown in a new way, by the transformed hearts of his people. Not by what they eat, but by how they treat one another. And then he goes on to explain what actually defiles a person. That is, what comes out of a person. Look with me at verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So sin is what defiles a person. Not their race, gender, medical condition, anything like that. And this isn't a comprehensive list of sins, but it covers enough to get the bases. Note that each one of these evil things, that Jesus, as Jesus calls them, is the opposite of loving God and loving your neighbor. Each one of these is an exhibition of self-importance over the importance of others. And I would take a wild guess that when we look at that list, none of us come back without some boxes checked. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Let's just take pride, for instance, because it goes with the theme of all that we're talking about. And let's forget... Let's not forget that the church contend towards the attitude of the Pharisees. Jesus himself warned his disciples just a couple weeks ago in the sermon. We heard that. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Pride is the root of the self-righteousness we see in the Pharisees. I've done so well that, God, you owe me your blessing. Or, I deserve to be part of your family. I deserve fellowship with you. I deserve your approval. I deserve your provision. I deserve your strength. Or even worse, I deserve your position. Where does your pride leave you feeling supreme? Just some simple things. Maybe it's the way you choose to raise your kids. All you have to do is check out a parenting message board to recognize that that's a big pitfall. <laughs> or maybe you're the type who just makes a lot of wise choices and you see the foolishness of others. I don't understand why they don't do things my way. Maybe you feel that way towards non-Christians. Why don't they get it? I get it. Or maybe it's the reverse. Maybe you've had a hard life and you feel like you have more credit and more excuses before God for your sin. Maybe you think if you send out good vibes to the universe, 
you'll get yours in time. That whatever force is out there will reward you for your goodness. Jesus says the things we bring to the table to make ourselves righteous and better actually make us unrighteous and worse. Even good things can be hijacked by pride when we use them to elevate ourselves above others and to the level of God. 1 Peter 5.5 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the Bible says that at least six other times in different places. So God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the pursuit of supremacy, but he gives grace when we recognize that he is supreme. So we're going to move now to our second story, which we'll see is starkly different from the first. So after telling the Pharisees that defilement comes from within, not from outside, Jesus ventures outside. He goes outside of Israel to the land of the Gentiles. Before we read the story, just know that for Israel, contact with outsiders was kept at a minimum out of fear of defilement. Jews couldn't dine with Gentiles, even enter their houses. Before we read the story, just know that if a Jew goes into their territory, he's likely going to come in contact with a Gentile. Um, And let's start in verse 24. From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house. And did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So Jesus is talking about clean and unclean to the Pharisees. And the next thing he does is get up and he goes into an area that's considered unclean. And he secretly enters a house. And now it doesn't say if this house is the house of a Jewish person or a Gentile, but I think it's safe to entertain the possibility that it belonged to a Gentile. Jesus wants to be quiet about, it, about this, but it looks like his renown has now spread to this region. Let's read on in verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had, unclean, had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So as he enters this house, this Gentile woman comes in, and it's like she's been waiting for him. She somehow gets wind that Jesus has come to town, and she's not going to miss her chance. We've seen a lot of miracles so far in Mark and a lot of different reactions to those miracles. There are people who are just chasing after Jesus for the show, but already she seems different. She falls at his feet. She begs him to cleanse her daughter of this unclean spirit. And I'm not going to lie, Jesus' response to her is jarring. He says to her, verse 27, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The children meaning Israel and the dogs meaning everyone else. Yikes. I wonder if she was expecting that. So just a quick note about dogs in Jesus' day. We love them today. They're our cute fuzzy friends. But back then they were a nuisance. And the view of dogs was not warm and fuzzy. They were uh, strays most of the time, and people generally, I mean, obviously not allowed inside. I actually don't think she would be surprised that an Israelite would address her this way, if you think of it. Gentiles aren't allowed in the house. They eat defiled food. They're unclean. But also, to be fair, Gentiles also hated the Jews as well, most of them. So Jesus is responding to her in accordance with what she would expect and what his disciples would expect. And we'll talk more about what he's doing 
Because if you think that the God who created people in his image actually thinks that they're dogs, that's just wrong. So there has to be something else that he's doing. So Jesus says, it's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. But the story doesn't end there. She has a response in verse 28. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So if Jesus' disciples are watching, here's what you might be able to expect as their interpretation. The woman enters the house and she's met with eye rolls, maybe even a backing up away from her so that they don't accidentally touch her. She begs Jesus to help her daughter, and Jesus says that the children's bread shouldn't go to the dogs. They're probably thinking, yeah, that's right. Go ahead, send her on her way. Well, then she enters Jesus' parable and decides that she's going to write more of the story. Even the dogs get the crumbs. What? A woman responding to the rabbi? That's unheard of. So maybe they're ready for Jesus just to tell her what's what the same way he did with the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't lose arguments. So if he loses this one, it's probably intentional. So what happens? He responds amazed, and he heals her daughter. They're probably like, what? What just happened? Jesus can't be tamed. He begins to tell her a parable, and she gets it. No one in Mark has gotten a parable right off the bat. And remember... These parables are to reveal truths about the kingdom, but only those who believe in Jesus will understand. Not only does she get it, she thinks this is what she might be thinking. That might be so. Israel might have been promised these blessings, but I believe that promise is big enough to overflow to me. I believe that you are not only powerful, but you are good. I come not with what I have to give you, but begging for what I know you've got to give to me. If you've dealt so graciously with them, would you also deal graciously with me? And she calls him Lord. She is the only person in the book of Mark to address Jesus as Lord. And he says, what an answer. For such an answer you may go, your child will be healed. And the commentary should resound in our minds. Thus, Jesus declared all people clean. Jesus and this woman together tell a parable that looks like it's about exclusion, but in fact, it's about inclusion. This woman enters the room as a dog and leaves a child. This is groundbreaking. This small story, this small act is a mystery revealed that the kingdom is for all peoples. And Isaiah points to this in the Old Testament when God says of his Messiah, his Christ, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring, them back, bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation might reach the ends of the earth. So in the first story of the chapter, we hear there's no unclean food. In the second, we hear there's no unclean people. The boundaries of the kingdom of God are not based upon a supreme race, gender, nation, or any other category. They're based on faith, faith in a supreme savior. The Syrophoenician woman recognizes that Jesus is supreme over the boundaries. Her posture before him is one of faith and humility. 
She doesn't jet out the door the moment she feels insulted. She comes to the table with nothing, asking for crumbs, knowing that just a crumb of Jesus' bread would be enough. She's not like the religious leaders who, says, who said, look at all we've done. She says, I know what you can do, and I need you. This should make us think about our own posture before Jesus. Are we easily offended by Jesus because we can't tame him? Do we admit our need for him? Do we come to his table all set or with humility and tenacious faith? So Jesus does this outrageous thing by healing this woman's daughter and essentially declaring Gentile inclusion in the kingdom. And at this point, any onlooker would be asking, and I think Mark wants us to ask this question, who is this man? Who is he to make these calls? And in this last story, Jesus shows us who he is through the healing of this deaf man. Let's read in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven and he sighed to him. And he sighed and said to him, Ephphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. So Jesus leaves Tyre, and he heads to the Sea of Galilee, but on the side of the Decapolis, which is another Gentile region. People ask him to heal this deaf man with a speech impediment. And he performs a ritual that, if you're like me, seems pretty gross. <laughs> We've seen healings like this before, Mark, but what's different about this one? The ritual is different. We already know that Jesus doesn't need to perform a ritual to do a healing. He just cast a demon out of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter from a distance. So why does he put his fingers in the guy's ears and spit on his tongue? If that's me, I'd appreciate avoiding that part. I'd be like, I know you can do this without actually putting your spit in my mouth. Can we, can we go the other route, please? But there's a lot going on. Jesus is identifying with this man. He's putting his fingers in his ears, his spit in his mouth, and then he looks up and he sighs. And to add a little color to that, the, Greek, the original Greek word for this is stenazo, which means an involuntary groan. So Jesus is identifying with this man and giving something of himself here. The healing appears to come at some cost to Jesus. And this is all telling of his identification with humanity and the foreshadowing of his suffering on the cross, where he'll groan again. Then he tells the crowd not to tell anyone, but the word keeps getting out. Look with me in verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What seems like a simple observation here actually identifies Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ who is supposed to come. More than pointing to what Jesus does, those words point to who he is. Isaiah 35 has a prophecy concerning the Messiah, God's king, who will come and restore all things. The scripture reads, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So as amazing as this healing is, it's not simply a healing. Jesus is the king, the savior of the world. The position of supremacy belongs to Jesus alone. He outranks every religious leader and king. 
That's why he gets to set the borders of the kingdom. That's why he gets to say who's in and who's out. But what's most remarkable about Jesus, and we'll close with this, I talked about the sick obsession that humanity has with supremacy and the degradation of other humans earlier. Jesus, the one who actually is supreme, doesn't operate the way that we do. What does he do? He's God, supreme, who takes on human form and becomes our servant. He's the supreme servant. He uses his power to heal and restore he operates out of love and he submits himself to death at the hands of those who in their pursuit of supremacy slay the Savior. The ultimate disdain for God's image was carried out on God himself, on Jesus Christ. So what's not told in the story of the Syrophoenician woman is that Jesus becomes the dog so that we can become the children. What's not seen in the story of the deaf mute man is that Jesus was silent as a lamb before its shearers. He didn't defend himself. He was put to death outside the city walls with the defiled to make the defiled clean. And he was raised on the third day as a promise that those who believe in him will also be raised. And those who come to his table asking for bread will never be turned away. And his table is full of insiders, and outsiders. Let's pray.